You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, everybody, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive on topics that are underreported by the mainstream news media and demand a further look, some background and context. You are very welcome, and we are glad that you've taken the time to join us today. Uh, We shed light on things that politicians would rather you forget. Judicial Watch's mission is to promote transparency, integrity, and accountability in government politics and the law. If that appeals to you, then you are in the right place. So please follow and rate this podcast on Watch, whether you found us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any of the other platforms that are out there. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating. Today, we've got a fascinating show for you. I have three flag officers. If you don't know what that means, these are general officers, excuse me, admirals and one general officer. And in military terms, persons of that rank are do and fly their own flag. It's a goes back. Actually, it's ancient in the sense of military leaders having a distinctive device or flag to designate their command and their authority. You've heard the term flagship. Well, that makes reference to an admiral flying his flag on the command ship of a fleet. And so that term carries over. And general officers and admirals are referred to routinely as flag officers. So today we have three. We have Vice Admiral Dean Lee, who is a Coast Guard officer, retired. We have Rear Admiral Pete Brown, and again, another Coast Guard officer. And we have Lieutenant General. General Jerry Boykin, who is a retired Army general officer. Uh, Each of them has incredible background and experience. Just briefly, uh, Vice Admiral Lee uh, had authority under uh, his command of the Coast Guard for essentially half the planet. He had responsibilities from the Rocky Mountains all all the way over to uh, the Arabian Gulf for all Coast Guard operations. Rear Admiral Brown had essentially the entire Southern Hemisphere in the Western or the uh, from Miami South. Think of it that way, the entire Southern portion of the globe. And of course, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin uh, is a career special forces officer, had been also served in a civilian capacity as an undersecretary of defense for special operations. He has a long career with Delta Force. You know him from also from his work at Family Research Council. And so we're very pleased today to have three retired flag officers with extraordinary experience, with tremendous backgrounds. And as we begin the show, I'm going to start off speaking with uh, Vice Admiral Dean Lee to talk about uh, some trouble that he has stirred up. And uh, the, the trouble has to do with him writing an open letter to all U.S. Coast Guard flag officers. Uh, And I'm going to let the Admiral describe exactly what his letter was about and what he's trying to accomplish. Welcome to On Watch, Vice Admiral Lee. Well, thank you, Chris. Appreciate the opportunity. So I retired in 2016, so I've been I've been off the grid for six years and uh, not paying any attention whatsoever to what's going on in the Coast Guard. I mean, I don't even read the retired newsletter, much less go to the Facebook page. Um, You know, I just, just, it's not that I'm not interested. I just, 
I left it to those behind uh, because it's now their turn. I had my turn. But three weeks ago, um, when I got home from church, I, um, I got a call from a, an attorney working for uh, an organization called stars.us. That's with two R's. Uh, I'd never heard of it before, but uh, this attorney, he, he called me because he is representing seven Coast Guard cadets who had just been expelled from the academy. And he was looking for somebody, uh, you know, any senior officer that he could find. And he, he got my name from somewhere. And, and he, uh, he wanted to know if I could have any impact on getting those cadets reinstated to the academy because they were being treated differently than, as he told me, the cadets at, cadets at the other academies. And, and it was because these, these cadets were unvaccinated. And, um, and so they sent them home and spelled them. They were still on active duty at that time. General Boykin, uh, many moons ago, uh, when I was commissioned as an Army officer, it was made very clear to me that, you know, our goal, our mission was to identify, close with, and destroy the enemy. And you're either contributing to combat power or you're a distraction and you're, you're, you're sucking up time, energy, money, people, and you're detracting from combat power. And everything that you've described and everything that our two other uh, Admiral colleagues from the Coast Guard are, des are describing are things that are distractions, that are detractors from our ability to bring resources to bear, whether it's combat power for for, uh, for armed forces or DOD components. Obviously, Coast Guard has that mission, but also has a law enforcement and, and safety mission a little bit different from the other armed, force, uh, armed forces. But you're, you're either contributing to the effectiveness of the mission or you're a distraction. And everything we've been talking about appears to be a total distraction and, and a, a minimizing of our ability to get the job done, to, to accomplish the mission. Uh, what has been the impact on readiness for, from all of these issues, these factors we've been talking about? Can I speak to that? Yes, please. Go ahead. All right. So I'm just speaking from the Coast Guard standpoint. Now, and, and, and so when I retired, I had the largest operational command in our service. And so I say that only because I'm trying to establish some credibility here regarding what I'm about to say here, uh, because I really believe that what, what we're doing here uh, is specifically in my service is we are driving the readiness bus right off the cliff. You know, we're, we're so stuck on sticking to this mandate and, you know, and, and punishing these non-vaxxers that we're really we're actually willing to reduce our readiness posture. Case in point, right here. Um, and we had, a, we had a rescue swimmer. Oh, this is beautiful. This very week, it made national news. Uh, we had a rescue swimmer named uh, Zach Lowe's from down at uh, Air Station Clearwater, Florida. He had gotten in the news because he was seen, they were hoisting an elderly woman in a wheelchair, I, I believe, up into one of our helicopters. And that evoked a uh, sales. 
All right. So the president is telling this guy what a great American he is for doing what he's doing. And, and he and he's unvaxxed and he's about to be discharged. He already has his walking papers. Now, let me just tell you about the, you know, the importance of that particular rating, job specialty, if you will, within our service. He is a rescue swimmer. This is the absolute pointy end of the search and rescue sphere. That is our most, in my view, that is our most important mission. And here's where it, it comes home with the United States citizens. You know, in, for the guy sitting in his armchair watching the evening news out in Nebraska, and he sees, you know, that we are discharging unvac service members from big DOD, you know, 300 pilots here and, and, and all the rest of them, thousands associated with this. He did, it goes in one ear and out the other because we're not at war. He just doesn't think that it's a big deal. But in the Coast Guard, we are so small at just over 41,000 that we don't have the bench strength that big DOD does. I mean, when, when we get down to minimal strength, we, we really can't respond. And so it is my view. I'm going to give you some numbers here. I want you to pay attention to this because I really believe that, that they're that their desire to continue flushing these trained, highly trained good people out right now, as we are hitting walls uh, with, with our ability to maintain response readiness, it is a functional equivalent of slit, of slit in our own throat. So in the rescue swimmer ratings, in that job special alone, we're right now at 89% capacity. There are already 67 swimmers short. All right. And so with a historical attrition rate of about 80 percent going through the school, this isn't just like you can't just make a rescue swimmer overnight. You can't hang a sign out there. that says wanted rescue swimmers. This is some of the most difficult, augurous training uh, uh, that, that we have in our service. Uh, you know, you only only two out of every 10 go make it through. And to close that gap, it's going to take at least five years uh, and a week. We purge the, the 20 or so that are currently waiting, unvaxxed, healthy men, uh, and probably some women too, that are in that rating. We just charge those. Now we're going to close that gap for seven years. And what that, what that means to the, to the fishermen in Alaska or in the North Atlantic is this. It means that we could conceivably go from a readiness launch posture of Alarm goes off, crew runs out, gets in the boat or gets into the helicopter, and they're underway within 30 minutes of notification to having to recall people who are on call and, 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 and launching in two hours of notification. That's completely unacceptable in the world of search and rescue. And that, unfortunately, is the rocky road that we are headed towards. Um, and on top of that, let me go this last point here. So we're only able to make right now because we don't even have a fully functional rescue survival swimming uh, training facility right now. We had, to, we had to move that thing to Petaluma, California while we rebuild a facility in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And so now we've got reduced capacity. We can only graduate, we think, probably about 16 a year based on historical results. And so what this is going to do is this could put greater pressure on the schools, 
and the unit instructors to lower the standards in an effort to pump out more less qualified individuals uh, to meet our mission needs. And, and I'm here to tell you, we've already learned that hard lesson uh, by previous mistakes. Years let me, ago. Let me, let me interject for a second. General Boykin across DOD, are there similar, are there parallel examples in other specialties as well? Yeah, no question about it. And uh, you know that I came out of the uh, special operations community. And let me tell you, the special ops community recruits from the big army. And uh, as, as the numbers in the big army are reduced, recruiting into the special operations uh, has a parallel reduction in those that are available for recruitment to be one of the Green Berets or the Rangers or the Delta Force or or even the aviators and uh, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. So, yes, it impacts those specialties. And what you're talking about when you're talking about a special operations, guys, you're talking about somebody that has uh, the, the, the military, the government has poured a lot of money into preparing them for their missions. They are highly trained, uh, highly specialized, and, uh, and, and when you – put one of them out, you've just thrown a million dollars down the drain. Admiral Lee, what is the lesson for the Coast Guard in this? Well, there's lots of lessons here. One of them is, uh, you know, in, 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 in one of my favorite books of leadership, if not, in fact, it is. My favorite book of leadership is the Holy Bible and in their book of Ecclesiastes. And, uh, it says, you know, the wisest man who ever lived said, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, we, uh, you know, it's all been seen and done before. And we, we keep forgetting those lessons. And Admiral Brown and I were involved in an incident uh, years ago, uh, whereby our own organization, uh, when we got in a similar situation like this, with, a, uh, with a, uh, I used to be the commander of this deployable operations group. And so my job was to have ready at all times these special teams, uh, that could deploy worldwide uh, in short notice to, to, you know, tend to the maritime issues or crises that come up. And so there was a lot of pressure because these were kind of high-end operators. We had to run them through the schoolhouse, and the schoolhouse was down at uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. We had a Coast Guard facility down there. And I was under great pressure by leadership, by the organization, to go green, get this, get this unit green. And at the same time, the schoolhouse that produced uh, my operators for me, he was the training facility. He was under the same pressure to deliver those guys to me. But yet he had sent multiple red flares up the chain of command saying, hey, I don't, I don't have enough instructors here uh, to put through the number of people you want and do it safely. And so he and he was right. He was absolutely right in hindsight. But yet I kept the pressure on him to do it. And finally, when he threw down and says, I'm not doing it anymore, we ended up putting on one of the courses ourselves, trying to do it in-house to meet mission demand. And unfortunately, there was a mishap involved. And it involved a, a young man's life. And we can't relearn that lesson. I don't want to relearn that lesson. And that's exactly where we're going. We're driving towards that critical point. 
And, um, and I think Admiral Brown has got some more data on this about the, the talks to our readiness impact. Go ahead, Pete. Yes, sir. Thank you. And uh, yeah, that, that mishap involving ME3 Sean Lynn uh, was really a, uh, just as I was approaching uh, becoming a flag officer, uh, my involvement in that investigation really opened my eyes to some of the, the, the weaknesses and vulnerabilities within our personnel system. So um, Admiral Lee spoke eloquently about the impact on the rescue swimmer rating and um, and some internal Coast Guard documents released just this year suggest it's not just in that rating. So um, our, our new commandant uh, took office uh, earlier this summer and uh, in first uh, testimony before Congress, uh, in a written testimony said among other things that the Coast Guard workforce is my highest priority, requires innovative tools, inclusive policies, trustworthy technology, modernized training and exceptional report to meet the demands of today and tomorrow. Um, just a couple weeks later, uh, the Coast Guard produced its uh, enlisted training and accessions plan uh, for the next couple of years. And uh, that's an internal document that basically describes, as Admiral Lee said, um, how big our workforce is, where the shortfalls are, where the, where the training system can help us make up ground. Uh, for fiscal year 22, the Coast Guard had already expected a shortfall of a little over 700 uh, enlisted workforce members at a workforce of about 40,000. It turns out that that shortfall is three times as large as originally projected, over 2,200 members short, and 17 of our 20 military specialties for enlisted members are short of our desired strength in those billets. So again, it's not just confined to rescue swimmers and aviators. This is across all slices of the Coast Guard operation, surface operations, engineering, electronics, operational specialists, uh, public affairs, uh, clerical and financial support. And almost every rating is short people. And, uh, and it's specifically, this internal document specifically attributes that to uh, recruiting shortfalls. And then it goes on to say, even if the recruiting system did 20% over expectation, we normally recruit about 4,000 to 4,200 uh, members a year. Uh, this year we did less than 3,000. Even if that cranked up to 5,000, the gap wouldn't be closed until uh, fiscal year 2025. So the Coast Guard itself is projecting a personnel, enlisted personnel gap of approximately 2,000 people a year for the next three years, um, in part due to, uh, in large part due to recruiting and uh, shortfalls. And so then, basically this week, so at the same time that we are discharging people who have requested religious exempt, uh, exemptions to the vaccine mandate, otherwise high performers, the Coast Guard just suspended a policy that, uh, that filtered out uh, enlisted members who weren't advancing quickly. So a petty officer, uh, an E-5, uh, would have uh, 16 years to, uh, to make, uh, 16 years total service to make E-6 or have to leave the service. And so there are a number of these progressional growth points along the way. The Coast Guard just suspended that entire system for the next three years. And people who were already on their way out due to not advancing promptly enough, basically holding up the system, theoretically lower performers, 
they have the opportunity now to stay in. So essentially we're lowering retention standards at the same time that we're purging high performers. And um, I think you mentioned earlier that I had the, uh, the privilege of commanding the 7th Coast Guard District a few years ago, based in Miami, responsible for Coast Guard operations and personnel in South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and the Caribbean, including Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And uh, it's one of the, it's the busiest geographic area of the Coast Guard. The, and the work is literally year round. In a lot of other places in the Coast Guard, we can work through laws and readiness with some timing and some surge personnel. But here in the seventh district, uh, that, uh, that surge is year round. Um, and we talked about uh, Zach Loesch and Air Station Clearwater. Air Stations Clearwater, Miami, and Brink in Puerto Rico are some of our busiest. And any shortfall in personnel out there at the edges of the country quite literally costs lives. Um, and so, uh, you know, the American people need to know that the Coast Guard may not be there as quickly, as promptly, as professionally, and as well trained as they expect because we are short people, we are short our best performing and best trained people because we have policies that are sending them home, essentially uh, purging them uh, from our workforce. General Boykin, that's, uh, that's true across DOD, right? It's, it's a parallel model. It, the impacts the Coast Guard uh, that have been described concerning the Coast Guard impact across DOD the same way, whether it's uh, you know, pick your pick your specialty. It doesn't really particularly matter whether you're uh, an Army Ranger or uh, a Navy corpsman. This slices across all the military services in the same way. Yeah, no question, it does indeed. And uh, the Coast Guard, I think, probably has the, the the biggest problem here for the very reasons that Admiral Brown just explained there. And and it's a uh, it's what forty-two thousand people, and and then you look at uh, what do we have in the other services? Uh, well, they're considerably larger than that, so they can absorb it easier. But uh, it is uh, it is a problem. It cuts across all the services, and I, I want to go back and say uh, this will be the last thing I guess that I want to contribute to this conversation. I travel all over the United States, and I speak at places all over the country. And it's very rarely that I go somewhere that I don't have a mom or a dad or both come up to me and say, well, my son, my daughter thinking about joining the military, but I'm, I'm watching what's happening. And, and, uh, is it as bad as I think it is? And should I, should I go ahead and support them and their, uh, desire to, to join the military? And I would tell you, it's becoming more and more difficult for me to look them in the eye and say, yes, yes, let them go into the military. They'll never regret it, which is what I used to say. But at this point now, they are concerned about uh, the idea that once they go into military, they have to check their faith at the door. And I think they see this assault on, on, on the faith that uh, many of these young men and women have grown up with. And uh, that is, is again helping to breed a generation of people that don't want to be in the military and when you get to that point 
what we wind up with is a conscript and maybe even a mercenary military. That is not what we want. We want people with values. We want people like these seven people in the Coast Guard Academy that had the courage to stand up for what they believed in, and they're paying the price for it. And uh, and I must tell you, we've got to turn this around. This has to this has to stop, and the Congress has to get involved in this. The Congress has got to the the Armed Services Committees and the Homeland Security Committee. They've got to recognize the long-term impact of what's happening right now. We've got to turn this around. We've got to stop this. Admiral Lee, what's what's the way forward? What's uh, what's right in front of us and what's just over the horizon? Well, this is the bottom line, what I am requesting. We need to take a strategic pause here. Let's just stop the discharges, like immediately, because they're being they're being flushed out every week as we speak. And 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 while we take that pause, let's have the services reassess and then answer the question for the American public that they serve is how is this actually going to affect our readiness? How is this act? How much is this actually going to cost? the taxpayer who is eventually going to have to, to bear the burden of that bill because we're purging so many. If you think about the investment we make in special operators and, and pilots, I mean, this costs everybody. It is not good for the services. It is not good for the country. And it's certainly not good for the taxpayers. And so finally, I would just, I would just say this, you know, when you look at the people who are in and out of the services and they're mulling over this without having, you know, any in-depth knowledge of all of the issues surrounded this, you know, the legality of the order itself, the, the efficacy of the of vaccine itself, and the, the, the necessity of continuing with it when we're already on the other side of the pandemic. I mean, these guys, they're treating us like it's still a, they got their hair on fire and treating it like it's a raging, raging crisis. And it is no longer that crisis. And, and, and that is important to me. Leadership needs to once in a while stop the ship, reevaluate where you are to prevent from running your own ship upon the shoals. And that's what. I see happening right now. And the other thing, and I'll leave you with this. Everybody's going, all right, look, I can't find anywhere where any faith group says that, uh, says that you can't take the vaccine. And, hey, I took the vaccine. I'm a Christian. And, and it's not a Christian issue. I just like to make that point. This is a, a this is a, a Jewish, a Gentile issue. It, all faiths matter. If, if their faith says I ought not take it, who is the government to ascertain what their faith is, and then to pull their ability to to uh, exercise that faith out of their constitutional rights, which is what they're supposed to swear to protect and preserve? How do you measure? a man's faith. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, at the end of the day, that, that's a great question. How do you measure? Well, I would say 
You measure that by what a man or a woman is willing to give up to preserve that faith. And, you know, like the old story in the Bible of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, the measure of their faith was, was proven. They were willing to go into the furnace. We know how that ended. Well, the measure of these men and women who are standing on this is you got people who are who have well over 15 years. I got an email from a guy today. He's got 19 years. And they're flushing him out without his retirement benefits. If you are willing to give up a lifetime pension to stand on your faith, that's proof that that guy has a religious. He deserves a religious accommodation. And I'm hoping the American people will stand up for that people. And if nothing else comes out of this, even if we can't stop this whole, this whole train in its tracks and keep those, the, the ones that are remaining on active duty, at least, at least we can honor and respect those who have over 15 years service in by giving them their retirement benefits. We can do at least do that. That's why it's, it's decisions like that that leadership has to make that will determine whether or not the, the rest of the troops will trust them. We are losing the, the, the military services as an institution right now for the first time in 20 years. Their trust factor, according to Gallup poll, is dying. And it's decisions like these that are causing it. You know, Admiral Brown and I take no joy in doing this. We, we love the United States Coast Guard. We, we put our entire working lives into the service of this great organization. And we want to make it abundantly clear that this is an outstanding organization. We want men and women to want to serve in that organization. We're, we're pushing back on this because we think it's the right thing to do. Our motto is Semper Paratus, always ready. Pete and I are, are involved in this particular debate on this particular day because if we continue down this road, given all of the circumstances regarding uh, recruitment, uh, shortfalls, et cetera, I fear we're going to have to change our motto to sometimes ready. Enough said. Admiral Dean, that's a very compelling and profound analysis. I want to give Admiral Brown uh, a shot at uh, sort of a closing comment or observation uh, from the, the legal uh, or the sort of the public policy perspective. Uh, Admiral Dean makes a very, excuse me, Admiral Lee makes a very strong uh, case concerning the 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 readiness and the moral imperative admiral brown uh please give me your your view what what's what's the call to action what's what's the compelling legal angle to this yeah so well thanks for that and and admiral lee certainly uh captures the uh the essence of the of the faith argument here and uh and there's no way that i out preach him um, so what I'll do is I'll take maybe a slightly different angle. So we talked a lot about the operational uh, roles that Admiral Lee and I had in the Coast Guard, but I also had a very interesting 
uh, job right after uh, the 7th Coast Guard District, and that was as Homeland Security Advisor to the President. I was essentially the number three guy on the National Security Council focusing on Homeland Security issues, but got to see how the White House interacts with the departments, how the, the department civilian leadership interacts with the military services, among others. And, uh, and my observation there would be that, uh, that a bureaucracy resists its own correction, that external force has to be applied to get the bureaucracy to, as Admiral Lee said, reverse course, put the rudder over, whatever it is, to get them to admit that they got something wrong and that they need to reassess and maybe reconsider policy. Um, and so ironically, uh, the NSC uh, spokesperson, uh, John Kirby, was on TV this week trying to defend the mandate as being a, uh, a contributor to military readiness while he was isolated at home with COVID despite being vaxxed and double boosted. And so the, uh, while maybe a year ago, the, the mandate in kind of throes of the pandemic was perhaps defensible, right now it's not defensible. We talked about the fact that the, the idea of a compelling medical readiness argument for this, these vaccines has been washed away. The efficacy is not what was advertised. The side effects to the extent that they're known, and they're not all known yet, particularly with regard to female fertility, but the side effects are greater than originally estimated. And the military cohort is younger, healthier, and less susceptible to COVID than any other demographic group in the nation. And so uh, all of the, the medical arguments and the, the legal arguments for what uh, the military has been doing have, are, have been washed away by time. And, uh, but what remains is the, the faith and the desire to serve of not only these cadets, but uh, other Coast Guard members and other military members. And, uh, and I would just go back to, uh, to what the, uh, the congressional letter uh, requested of the SECDEF, which is to, uh, to uh, rescind, uh, revoke the mandate for all service members and reinstate those who have already been discharged. That's the, uh, that's the desired end state because that will restore the faith, not only of the military members themselves, but also of the public that uh, that the military is willing to do the right thing for the nation. Ellen Watch listeners, you have heard probably one of the most compelling and articulate explanations of a military readiness uh, crisis that the country is facing, of how our armed services uh, deal with the service members who are seeking religious accommodation for those that are uh, trying to faithfully serve their country, uh, yet have a, uh, a legitimate religious uh, or, or uh, really a, a request pending concerning their acceptance of uh, vaccination requirements placed upon them concerning COVID. Uh, you've heard from uh, Vice Admiral Lee, Rear Admiral Brown, and Lieutenant General Boykin on all these matters. You're not going to get better, more accurate, more articulate information, uh, frankly, anywhere. And you've seen people who, uh, in this case, who have stood up 
uh, put their stars on the line here to explain to you the threat uh, to to our country, to our safety, to our readiness, to our ability to perform the, the military duties and obligations, the missions assigned to all of our branches of the armed services. We have two Coast Guard admirals here and one uh, Army uh, general describing the circumstances. The Coast Guard, of course, has a unique position or status, has a unique role or mission. That's why it's part of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, it is an armed military force, but it does search and rescue. It does law enforcement. It also has a military role. Uh, and so they've really got a unique status. You've heard that articulated well. You've heard about an organization called Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services or STARS, what their role in this has been. I encourage you to read the open letter that Vice Admiral Lee has put out to other flag officers asking them to engage their intellect and their judgment on how the services go forward with respect to COVID vaccination and how they treat members of the armed services who have applied for a religious accommodation exemption. This is a readiness issue. This is a big question concerning how our armed forces defend the country and provide, uh, uh, with regard to the Coast Guard, provide uh, safety and law enforcement services to the country. It's uh, it's not going to go away. This is a very dangerous and very. Um, it, it is a compelling day to day crisis that the country faces when it seeks to push out of service highly trained and skilled members who perform important duties. And there's going to be an impact. We've seen the impact. General Boykin mentioned the problem with recruiting for the Army. This is not going away. And we will continue to report on this. I encourage you to go to the stars.us website uh, and read. It's S-T-A-R-R-S.us. Read General, excuse me, read Admiral Lee's letter. And uh, share this podcast with friends and family members so they understand what's going on here. I want to pause and thank Vice Admiral Lee, Rear Admiral Brown, and Lieutenant General Boykin for their incredible service to this country that continues to this day. They may have retired, but they are serving each in their own individual capacities to this very moment by bringing this information to you and to putting the Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security on notice about the real threat to our readiness across the board. I'm Chris Farrell on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.